Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 247 and the return to the podcast of Kansas City-based percussionist, teacher, performer, and band director, Jeff Hewitt. We'll get to Jeff shortly. But first up, an actual in-person conference. I just got back from the 2021 Missouri Bandmasters Association Conference, an annual event I attend every year through my athletic band's position at Mizzou and hosted every year at the Margaritaville Resort at the Lake of the Ozarks in central Missouri. Like many conferences, last year's was postponed due to the pandemic. Because of the speed of vaccinations and the like, it wasn't clear a few months ago if the conference could go off as planned, but it was able to happen. And it was generally successful. As this was a bandmasters conference, there was not much in the way of percussion-specific items, although there was a very good all-state percussion audition clinic by local percussion professor Nicole Ulmer. However, there were very good clinics on conducting, mental health, reading sessions for new music, and others, along with some live performances, which included an outstanding performance by Boston Brass. Most importantly, it was great to just hang out with folks in person for the first time for a long time. And it felt weird, particularly in the beginning. And with the June weather actually being decent, I, along with a couple of parents and about 25 to 10 year olds, availed myself to the pool water slide. Now, I have no shame, none at all. It was awesome. All right, let's get to Jeff Hewitt. So, Jeff and I go back about 10 years or so to his days as a percussion grad student at Mizzou. And during my time, when I was teaching at Lincoln University in Jeff City, Missouri, and was still pretty connected to things at Mizzou. Jeff went on to Arizona for his DMA, then came back to the Kansas City area afterwards to begin his career. Jeff was on my podcast all the way back in November 2016 on episode 15. That was a long time ago. Not just in regular terms, but both to the podcast and to our careers. Jeff was on so long ago, I hadn't even come up with the random ask question segment. So even for that reason alone, it was good to have him back on. But the other reason to check back in with Jeff is that he went through a lot over the past five years. He'll explain it. But the major change is that he ended up taking a full-time job as an assistant band director and percussion instructor in the Kansas City, Missouri area. And he did so in pandemic times. So boy, there is a lot to talk about there. And it's also just great to catch up with him anyway. So here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on June 15th, 2021, and it begins right now. So Jeff, uh, I had you on uh, almost five years ago. Let's just kind of trace what's been going on with you since then. That was kind of a, you, it's been a, a pretty active turnover for you for, it was for a few years, if I remember correctly, and it's stabilized uh, correct. Yeah. For, for, you, for you professionally. So give us a rundown of what's been going on since then. Sure. So when we spoke, um, 
well, obviously I've spoken to you quite a bit in the last five years, but when, when I was on the podcast last back in, we determined it was what November of 2016. Yeah. yeah. I had, um, I had recently moved back to Kansas city where I'm originally from. Um, I had been living in Tucson for five years where I did my DMA at the university of Arizona and I taught out there for a while and did work with um, the world percussion group. Uh, so that I was kind of transitioning into um, some other teaching positions and the world percussion group tour had ended. And I think we had just played at PASIC um, right around the time that we did the podcast. Actually, I think we had just played at PASIC and that was over because the tour in America was, there was no plan to do that um, in the, you know, in the immediate future. Um, if, if anybody has followed that since they've done some tours over in Europe, um, but a very different type of um, format, I guess, or a somewhat different format than what we did on the American tour. So when I moved back to Kansas city, I had found a few positions that had fallen into my lap. I think at the time when we spoke, at the end of 2016, I was teaching at a high school on the Kansas side and um, doing percussion and drumline and um, essentially freelancing. And then I was also teaching music theory at Park University, which is just um, a little bit northwest of, uh, of downtown Kansas City. So I did that trying to trying to just make ends meet i i added a second high school to my teaching schedule but it's it was still never enough and i was doing that those three schools for like three years teaching a ton of percussion lessons with students that went to those high schools and playing in a couple different chamber groups too um two groups that actually had like very similar names there was the kansas city percussion group and there was the kansas city percussion collective and i think we came up with the collective name before the percussion collective really started hitting the hit the ground running um like playing a pace like that was the van size group i think right <laughs> we all thought of it at the same time let's say okay <laughs> i'm not saying they took it by any means right just a coincidence yeah yeah anyway that lasted those those teaching positions lasted about those were three years and then I was like I need something more steady and I uh, I didn't know I mean I, I was looking obviously outside the Kansas City area too um, but there was a position that opened up um, in a district on the Missouri side of Kansas City for those that aren't familiar Kansas City is one of those unique places where the state line splits the city. And I, it's, it's interesting because St. Louis is the same way and they're both in the same state. Um, but I, I had never taught in the public schools in Missouri. I was, I grew up on the Kansas side and the high schools I had been teaching at were on the Kansas side. Um, but I interviewed for a job in the Park Hill school district. It was a position listed as instrumental and percussion music teacher so immediately, like, just knowing that they had a desire for somebody that was a percussion specialist. The position isn't a percussion specialist job like you would think of in, like, Texas. But they wanted somebody whose specialty was in percussion, but also somebody who had taught band. And I had done that 
after my undergrad, before going back to grad school, I mean, my original plan um, coming out of high school was to be a band director. So I did do that for a while. I did that for a year in Tucson too. Um, but it just seemed like a, a good fit. So I've been at Park Hill High School now for two years as a full-time position. I actually traveled to two different schools. They have an interesting program in that district called the Lead Innovation Studio, where students also do like project-based learning. They're planning on having an actual ensemble in that building for next year. Um, we don't know officially, but right now all those students like get transported over to their home high school where they do their music classes. So right now I'm teaching um, some of the concert bands. The percussionists are obviously like a big focus for what I'm doing there, but I also teach music theory and music appreciation. So all those things are offered. So it's a lot of, it's quite a variety of, of music classes, mixture of ensembles and, um, and classroom classes too. So that's kind of where I am in regards to like what my, my main um, career path has gone at this point. The thing that I, I remember about you, you're, you're leaving a little bit out because I know that when I, if I'm not mistaken, didn't like the, the other jobs kind of fold away, like in, in like a weird pattern, like it, like it, it wasn't as clean of a split, right? <laughs> From one <or> the other. <laughs> yeah. Well, the high schools, I was, I was at Shawnee Mission East for three years and Olathe South for two, because I, I needed a second school, like after that first year. But the, the thing at Park University where I was teaching theory I taught there for two years and what had happened there, like it's a very small music program and it's all, I want to make sure I'm, I'm getting this straight because it's been a while since I've even thought about it. Um, but it's all piano and strings. Okay. So there are, there is no winds and percussion there and it's very much like, conservatory style even though it's not technically a conservatory um and what had happened was the applied faculty when they were accepting students the majority of the students that they would accept were grad students who were not required to take your basic like four semesters of music theory so there weren't enough students to actually be enrolled in my class to make it like a even like to get full-time adjunct compensation for like that, um, for that class. So it just, we all, I mean, it was a good split. I mean, but it just didn't make sense for me to be traveling that far to not even get paid like the, the amount that, you know, because I was, there were, just weren't enough students to be taking the class. So they had to restructure like who was teaching it, like from the applied faculty which was a bummer because I wanted to hold on to a college gig at the time, you know, um, as I was still like pursuing that path as well. But it was a great, I loved teaching there. It was a great opportunity. The students were amazing. There was one student who had just got the silver medal at the Van Cliburn piano competition while I was there. So like that was, there was a lot of excitement and there still is like surrounding that program um, for, especially for piano students and, 
and string students. So, yeah. Wow. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, was it nice to not to, that you could actually, that, that position for at Park Hill was full time. You didn't have to like search out other stuff to like actually be able to live. Yes. I mean, it's, it's nice to have, you know, how much, <laughs> you know, you're going to be able to cover rent the next month for sure. And, and having benefits, there are good benefits. And I mean, there's, there's ups and downs to like, to that, of course, like when I was freelancing, I had a whole lot more time where I could be practicing my craft and rehearsing with these quartets that I had been playing with. Um, Cause when you're in a group with other people who freelance, you know, if you have availability, like let's say in the morning or afternoon, you can, you know, do that then and teach percussion lessons in the afternoon when school's out. Um, so I do really miss having that um, freedom, I guess, because man, public school teaching is exhausting, especially when you're dealing with a big marching program. I mean, obviously that only goes on in the summer and the fall, but there's so many things that happen throughout the year beyond that, even that a lot of people may not even realize, like they know that, <laughs> for example, my, when my friends want to like, let's say do something socially on the weekend in the fall, like I won't see them until like Thanksgiving. But then a lot of times we think, Oh, well, once, once marching band's over, you know, we will have the, have more time, but then there's so many other things that, that we do with solo and ensemble festivals, state large group, um, you know, district and state band auditions, all those things happen on the weekends, you know, that our students are all involved in. So they're really important activities, but like from a performing standpoint, personally, it has really taken a toll on like what I, what I have been able to do, as a performer, I guess, you know, and I think most band directors will tell you that um, they all really miss playing, you know, got to make ends meet too. And I love the gig, you know, it's, um, I just hadn't, I hadn't had that many commitments in quite some time, you know, so it, it definitely, it's been an interesting transition. And the, and, you know, the two years that I've been now teaching at Park Hill, they have been the weirdest years ever. I haven't had a normal year there yet, you know, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about COVID maybe perhaps like, well, you know, throughout this interview, when things shut down two marches ago, we still hadn't done like a lot of the big festivals that you do in the spring. And even this year, when things started to kind of transition to normal again, somewhat normal, they were still like all virtual events. So that I still haven't had like a full year of, um, of experiencing like how a typical, like Kansas city Metro on the Missouri side school, um, will experience things. Kind of the, the experience that ended up happening, you know, for you this past, I mean, we, we can talk about the spring, but like, mm -hmm. you know, you trying to figure out what, what a normal, I guess you had one normal marching year and then you had whatever you had last. 
a year yeah. ago. And I obviously want to try to keep this related to percussion as much as I can. Sure. Um, even though like a lot of my position has actually become very heavy in the band side of things, even though my, I'm also like considered the director of percussion two springs ago in 2020, everybody was just trying to figure out how to, how to keep school going from home. Cause we were home for those last two months of school from trying to figure out what I'm going to have. Let's say my percussionist do from home. Um, I would, luckily we were getting ready for like marching band auditions, let's say. So at least I could provide them a lot of material that they could work on and they would submit like videos of themselves playing and I could critique them. Um, and I would have my wind players do playing tests too. Cause I was also in charge of like a 60 piece concert band. <laughs> and, and after the first week of teaching from home, like I realized I can't, it, I will, I'll make myself go crazy if I have to watch like 65 minute playing tests every other day, you know, we started doing that, but then it was just like, it was, it took a toll fast, you know? So that became more of like an every other week kind of thing. And then just kind of coming up with fun activities that kept them engaged and, and a lot of surveys about like the next year and, and things that we would have had to do anyway. But, um, yeah, it was it was crazy to like try to come up with assignments for a performance based class. Music theory, music appreciation was kind of they were already in a routine. They'd been in a routine for a long time, so that wasn't quite as hard. Music theory was did have its challenges because it's nice to be able to like draw stuff on a board. You know, it's like a math class in a way. You know, so that there were challenges there, but for like a music history, music appreciation, it was, it wasn't that, it wasn't as as challenging as like teaching musicians how to play their instruments. <laughs> so anyway, last summer, we gradually started being allowed into the school again. Of course, like having masks on, even when we were outside. I mean, that obviously that's just a new thing where we can actually kind of be free of that at some places. Um, but like we would have drumline rehearsals at school starting like in July. I think June was still off limits. And like I had, I, the students weren't actually allowed to come inside the school, but they could rehearse outside. So we would have morning rehearsals uh, occasionally for getting ready for the marching season. Cause we had planned, like we were going to still try to do a marching show. And, um, which is kind of crazy to think back on because COVID had only really been around for a few months, you know, but we were determined to do it somehow. And so I remember like those, those mornings that we would rehearse, like me and a few of the other, the drumline staff, we would grab halt, schlep all the gear outside and we'd have to like, wipe down everything after we moved it. And then like, obviously there was like the kids had to have their own sticks that they weren't going to ever share with anyone. And then when they were done, we would wipe everything down again because we just didn't really know, you know, what could cause big problems. And we didn't want (laughs) to surround ourselves with that. Ultimately, like the camps went great. I mean, we were outside pretty much the whole time. We did like mornings and evenings so that, um, the afternoons weren't too, I mean, the afternoons were, were you know, here in Kansas city in July and August are so hot. 
So that worked out well. And we had like the guy who designed our show design it where it was six feet uh, spacing. All the winds had their instrument masks and their face coverings of special uh, bell covers. So it was actually a really successful marching season, believe it or not. We actually got to put on a show. Whereas I think a lot of the schools, at least in this area, either didn't even have in-person class or they were just like essentially standing in place and playing. So we actually did do a show with like 60 sets still, which was less, a lot less than what we normally would, but um, it was, it was pretty amazing. And gosh, I just, I remember the first time that we actually like performed and the kids were just so excited. And most of our performances were uh, Thursday night rehearsals. So our parents would come in at the end of our rehearsal and we would perform our show each each week that there was a home game because the only home game we actually played at was at the homecoming game. Cause I think only students were allowed to go to that game <laughs> and competition wise, most of the competitions were virtual, but we did have, uh, it was like a Northland KC festival where instead of us traveling to one school, the judges actually traveled to each school. Mm which I think is really thinking outside the box. I mean, uh, I think there was only maybe, I don't even know if it was even half a dozen schools, but it was at least the, the our students had the opportunity to, to feel like they were being critiqued because the judges were there on the field or up in the box and they got to give get a little clinic after, after their performance. Um, and in my district, we have two high schools. So it was also nice for each, program to see each other's show for the first and only time really um but to like you know cheer each other on and have some sense of normalcy you know during during what's sometimes like their favorite part of the year you know with marching man they can actually do a show in front of people and get feedback and like applause and uh-huh that's pretty awesome. I mean, you're pretty lucky that that, that, that actually happened for you all. Yeah, we're very lucky. And I and I got to credit like the head band director too for like really thinking of ways to make it work and and uh, but still keeping it safe. And um, it was yeah. Looking back on it, it's really impressive. Even like the things that happened this past spring, which you know, if you want to hear about that too, I can tell you all about sure. it. It once marching season was over, things started to get weird because we had to then come inside. It's getting colder. Um, and that's just that's what happens. Once once at least here, pretty much by the end of October, you're transitioning to indoor band, you know. And and one thing I didn't mention about marching season is that we were on a hybrid model for the majority of the year, which meant all of our students were split based on their last name. So A through K would be at rehearsal on Mondays and Thursdays and L through Z was Tuesdays and Fridays and all students were virtual on Wednesdays. So because we're also on a block schedule, we were only seeing each half of the alphabet once a week during the class day. Mm. Yeah. And then we had Thursday night rehearsals, which is also when we had those performances. So each kid was getting like two rehearsals a week 
thanks to that Thursday night event, which incorporated everybody. But once we transitioned to the indoor band, well, normally we would split the marching band into what we would consider concert band and symphonic band. And that couldn't happen because it was now kids were there based on their last name and not splitting up by ability level. So we, this, the, this is the one from a percussion standpoint, this was the one big positive, I guess, that we could take out of this whole COVID situation is that when, once we split, we knew that we were going to have, have to do flex band. Okay. Because we had kids of all different ability levels together right? Which was about 50 kids per flex band. We called it an A band and a B day band. There's only two band directors at the high school. Um, my colleague took the wins every day onto the stage and I got to take all the percussionists with me into the band room, which was amazing because we've never had like a percussion class. And that's like a dream goal of mine is to someday get its own to have its own class okay i think most percussionists who teach at the high school level want that you know and in missouri there's not a whole lot of schools that even have that yet but i hope it's coming anyway during this during this hybrid model i got to do that so we would do master classes and we would always have different um warm-ups every day i was a big fan of like the five and the nine minute drill um, just to work all the different rudiments and different different techniques that they need to to know, and we could rehearse. Um, we did some percussion ensemble and um, just doing things that normally wouldn't be covered in a typical like band rehearsal. You know, anybody who's had a percussion class knows that that's the time that you would use for percussion ensemble rehearsal or master classes, or you bring in a clinician or whatever it may be. Um, and we got to do that really from like November all the way up until right before spring break, which is when we went back to all full in person. And, and I, I think the kids really enjoyed it. They got to focus on their instrument with, with, um, you know, that's my passion, of course. So um, I, I, I loved it. And yet we still had a big spread of ability levels because we had freshmen through seniors in there. Um, so it, it was a bit of a challenge to like make sure that everybody was still um, getting something out of it. You know, I know some of the seniors when we would cover like triangle technique in a, like a, in a master class, they'd be like, well, we know how to do this. I'm like, yeah, but there's something you'll, I hope there's something that you can take away from it. Um, but that I'd say that that was one of the, big positives from a percussionist standpoint um, that, that we got out of this whole hybrid model because of COVID. Well, maybe um, that's something that you can, you can make a case that this is extremely beneficial as a, as its own thing, mm -hmm. you know, going forward. Yeah. That's the, that's the plan. Yeah. And then that all went away right before spring break when we all went to in-person learning. And that was nuts too, because we were, we were planning for state large group with these flex band pieces. And then we're informed like, Oh, 
well, right before spring break, we're going to go full in person. So we like made the decision. We're going to split the bands up based on ability level. So we had like, I don't know, something like five or six weeks to prepare new pieces for state large group, <laughs> which was a virtual festival, just like solo and ensemble was this year. But we had a lot of, there were quite a few percussionists who submitted things and it was good to, that they, they had the opportunity to still prepare a solo and really it was a pretty low pressure experience, I think. And I think that's why more students took advantage of it because they had like, I think the app that they were using to upload their solos, they got like three shots at it. Yeah. You know, which isn't real life, but at least there were some students who played solos who may not have had it been like the normal live festival, you know? Yeah. But it, it does allow them to, get some um, get some work on using these types of these video apps or whatever. And it, and at least like you're, you're getting their best shot, mm-hmm. which is probably like, that's good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's kind of how that year went this yeah, year. Yeah. In a nutshell, I mean, there was obviously there were struggles and crazy things. Like we would have, we could rehearse for like, 30 minutes 20 30, 25 or 30 minutes and then we have to leave the room and let right. the the aerosols clear for like 20 minutes and then we could come back in but during percussion class since we weren't using air we never had to take a break you know as long as everybody was wearing their mask and staying six feet apart we never actually had to break during during the master classes or the those those percussion rehearsals made sure that like all of the chairs had, there was always like a tape marker so that we always knew that everyone was actually six feet apart. Cause at the end of every school day, we had to like submit a form saying which students did not have a mask on, who were they close to for at least 15 minutes. Um, so that for contact tracing reasons, you know? Yeah. So, and then we ended the year, they, they always do like a, a drum show and it's a, it's a, it's always been a student led event and we didn't have it last year in 2020, obviously. But once the school started allowing um, live events in the auditorium, we are like, well, I think we're going to be able to make this happen. And I was extremely hands-off with this event. Um, I mean, all the rehearsals had to happen after school. And, and the kids pulled it off. It was amazing. And it, it's interesting to see how, like, when, when it's their baby, like, how much energy there is around that kind of type of event. If it was me just, like, harping on them, like, practice, let's rehearse as much as we can, you know, whatever. Like, there's a different mindset sometimes, you know? And since I kind of just let them do their thing, <laughs> cross my fingers at the dress rehearsal that like some of the things were um, ready to go. I mean, obviously I've worked with some of the ensembles and heard the soloists. It was pretty much, it was like a, just to give you a little bit of information about what the show was. It was a mixture of like, like legitimate percussion ensemble, like marimba solos. Some of the students did their own arrangements. So they did like a, arrangement of like don't fear the reaper and dancing queen and a cold play song so like fun stuff that they they're into which which adds even more excitement to to them wanting to like put on a great show 
You um, didn't say I, I'm shocked that you didn't say uh you know, there's this great song by the outfield. Uh, there's lots of great songs by the outfield. Man, I was waiting. I, I wonder what Mark were. I, there's obviously, I don't know what I'm, the timer, but I was waiting to see how long it would take for us to um, to get into the outfield. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, it'll be like at the 25-minute the mark or so. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I, and, you know, again, we, we've probably said this before. Your Love is a timeless song. I'm, I know the kids know it. It's funny. I had a student this year. Her name was Josie. And um, every time she was, like, absent, I would have to sing the, big, the first line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you and record she, it for for her so that she could uh she she would know that she was missed by the by the rest of the group? Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> she she knew the song obviously. The rest of the kids well, some of them hadn't heard it, but then we watched the video and they're like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> <laughs> You know, Pete, I have a signed copy of the Outfield's debut album on my wall. You would. I'm, look, I'm looking at it right now. Unfortunately, I didn't get it signed. I found it like at a record store. I hope I'm not repeating myself, but I found it at a record store for like a dollar. I mean, I obviously already owned it, but this is a signed <laughs> copy. So clearly that's going in a frame yeah. on my wall. <laughs> Smart. This Again, is... For those of you listening, we're talking about the 80s band The Outfield. Yes. yes. <laughs> you didn't hear it incorrectly. It is The Outfield with your love. And they had so many other great songs. Like the entire greatest hits, which it should just be called greatest hit. But I don't want to sell them short because they had some other great, some semi-popular songs. But nowadays... Your love's the only one anyone ever knows. And I think the other guy, the other like leader of the band, is he recently passed away. I, I think know. That's, that's what a bummer. Right. Yeah. I, I knew one had died a while back, but now I'm never gonna have a chance to see them. Which sucks, but yeah. Yeah. Tony Lewis and John Spinks. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Once you once you decided to take this position um, at Park Hill, from all of the kind of the trying to figure out like what your career is going to be because of the because you you were looking for all the you know the college job kind of kind of okay. situation. I understand the like the not being able to play part, or you know just not having time or energy or or what have you to try to you know keep up. Uh, you know the kind of the the, the skills that that you were doing mm-hmm. as an artist, but I'm wondering what what do you feel like? Do you feel like you've adjusted to kind of the rhythms of of being in high, you know, working in the in the high school and the band scene? Like, does that does it feel like like the, like it's you're okay with it, with that like that being where you're at? Yeah, I think I, yeah, I am okay. I mean, I think I might always have the desire to teach um, at the college level. I mean, and there's, and it's not, I don't think that like that opportunity is gone. No, not, it's not actually, because there are so many, so many folks 
they they particularly ones who teach in the you know who are who are in band in in college have high school they all have to have had high school teaching experience anyway basically mm-hmm. i mean that's the most basically a prerequisite the it it would be it's definitely not out of the realm i, I guess what i'm right who knows when like perhaps adjunct positions may just like fall on your lap you know in a city those are going to be harder to come by you know when i was in central kansas for my first teaching job i i ended up getting associated with three different small colleges in central Kansas that needed somebody to teach percussion lessons, which ultimately led me to go to grad school and pursue performance degrees so that I would have an opportunity or to, to teach at the college level. But I am really happy with where I'm at. I've always been a city guy, obviously like your job is an extremely important part of your life, but I've learned to like, also have balance with that and being able to like live downtown in a, in a cool city has also like really helped with my like quality of life too, for what I want, you know? Yeah. I'm happy with, with teaching at the secondary level and, and I get to still teach music theory, another subject that I love, you know, I may not have a degree or anything in music theory, but um, I've learned to like, I think get pretty good at teaching it. Cause now I've taught college and high school levels and I still have that opportunity too, but you know, it's pretty sweet that from the percussion standpoint at this, at this particular school, since it's a pretty big school in the, in our city, you know, we've, we may have like 30 percussionists in the program, you know? And of course, like they're not all going to be like diehard. Like that's all I do. You know, we have so many percussionists who do so many different things and that's great. You know, that's what you're supposed to do in high school. Yeah. But yet there are still always going to be seniors who are graduating, who are still planning on either studying music in college or just going out and maybe playing in their college drum line or participating in like the third concert band or maybe getting involved with the percussion ensemble at their university. And that, and that's really cool. From a high school teacher standpoint, that should always be like part of their philosophy of just getting your students to like keep music in, in their life in some way. So yeah, if, if a college position opens up in the area, well, if I feel like I can, you know, add that to my plate, which I would love to, like, I would I would love to have that opportunity again to, to, to teach at the college level. Cause I, I mean, for sure, I definitely miss like working on that rep too, or working, you know, being involved in, in those um, higher level pieces, whether it's solo rep or especially percussion ensemble music. I mean, I feel like percussion ensemble is one of my passions within our field for now. I'm, I'm, I'm content. Great. Well, and the, the other cool thing, like you mentioned, is that you and because th- this is not something that that I think enough people consider, particularly in early on, um, is just that you really have. Uh, um, and I know this because because uh, partially because I know that you like get getting f- for you to get to be able to live in Kansas City was a goal 
Mm-hmm. Like, you know, by yourself, like, you know, like have your own place. Yeah. Um, but that you really um, push to have quality of life as a major factor. Where you lived is, was, is like as important, if not more important, it seemed like. Like both in, both being, you know, near the city and in the city, right? Yeah. I mean, we only have so much time, right? I, I don't, I mean, I don't think about that a lot, but it's true, right? So, you know, I'm, I feel lucky to still be able to teach music and focus on percussion and, and do all those things 15 minutes from living, you know, in a place where I love living, you know? So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think for sure it's a, it, it's a factor, you know, I mean, early on in my career when I was just getting started, I didn't have that option. You know, I moved to central Kansas and nothing against central Kansas, but um, that was a quite a culture shock from somebody who had lived in Kansas city for their whole life, you know? Um, but I made it work and um, I put in the time and that's just what we do right? To get to another position that maybe fits me personally better, you know? I have family here and a lot of friends, and um, I like the people I work with, and the students are fantastic. For now, I like what I'm doing. If You know, I'll just see where, where it takes me. All right, here we go. Uh-oh. Time for the random ass questions, Jeff. <laughs> okay. You were on you were on the show too early before I had even had the segment. So now we're we're gonna we're gonna blow through a lot of these. So awesome. All right. All right. First question, the regular question opening question here, which is what's an issue in percussion education, percussion teaching, percussion performing, one of those that you um, that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Mm, good question. I hope I don't offend people with these answers. I hope you do kind of actually. Okay. Um, and I, again, I hope I'm not repeating anything that I did five years ago, but this is still what I guess bothers me having, um, having been th- um, through several different programs. Okay. And also teaching at a lot of different programs. I feel like, looking back now is a drum set needs more focus. I feel like at least in, at least where I've been that still marimba is like the marimba and snare drum are like the main things, which sure foundation of, of playing our instrument. Okay. But since like finishing a terminal degree, like it's not like I'm, I was like a world-class marimbist or anything, but I've never once got a call to do a solo marimba recital, but I've definitely been called in to do drum set gigs, you know? So I would say that generally speaking, let me say like at least 75% of percussion gigs are maybe drum set gigs. You know, I mean, if you're, if your main, goal is to play in a symphony then you're not going to have to worry about drum set as much you got a steady gig but even when you get called in to be a sub with an orchestra for example like that's not going to happen as many times usually as like getting called in to play a gig on drum set and i and i feel like you know even from the high school level the only 
real times that you're going to be focusing on drum set as a high schooler is if you're in jazz band or if maybe you're in the front ensemble and there's a drum set part or, you know. So I think that if you're taking percussion lessons at the high school level, you're probably focusing on drum set, which is great. But then if you're going to go study at a, you know, study music as an undergrad, I think a lot of those schools don't put an amount, enough focus on drum set, at least from at the beginning. Students will then hopefully figure out what their strengths are, and then maybe they will have the opportunity. But, you know, some schools will have one percussion teacher, and maybe their focus is orchestral or, or mallets, or, um, and they just don't, you know, focus. Their, their, their program doesn't have as much focus on drum set, but students need to have those skills to play in different styles. Um, whether it's a jazz gig or a rock gig or a salsa gig, you know, playing like in a musical, all that stuff. It's such an important skill. And if you're going to try to freelance, you better be able to play drum set, you know? So I think that's, did we ever talk about this? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. You've talked to 245 other people. So it's probably out. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I guess that's my answer. That's, mm -hmm. that's, I guess, a, a, a big frustration. And probably looking back on it as well, like I should have probably even, had I known, I should have um, shown me more desire to do that. Because I'm sure that all of my teachers had some great things to, to teach about that. But, um, but I don't think I, at the time, was um desiring it and now i wish i would have you know yeah yeah so. now i hear you that does come up i mean you're not the only one who's who's made that comment over yeah. the years so uh -huh. yeah <laughs> all right well let's get to some other things uh what is the most impractical item of clothing you own wow we really uh changed subjects I'm trying to think here. Mm -hmm. So where the editing comes in too, by the way. Okay, good. Yeah. Good. You don't have like an old Elvis Gerback jersey that you just still have for some reason? I wish. That'd be kind of cool now. <laughs> I mean, I have so many t-shirts. Right. I have so many t-shirts that my closet, the the rod, tore down the little plastic thing the other day. <laughs> so that just tells me I need to like donate a bunch of clothes. So yeah, I guess I have a lot of impractical t-shirts and other, you know, just stuff that I just don't wear as much. We get so many, I feel like I have so many like t-shirts from like my schools and stuff and yeah. a lot of it I don't wear. So I guess, I guess that's it. No, that's, that's, <laughs> I that's want to get it back up, but the, yeah. the, um, yeah, I just needed a bigger nail. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to figure out some more space to put more T-shirts. That's all. Yeah. You know, I I was trying to think of, like, what kind of accessories I own. And, like, yeah. I always – well, I'm not wearing a hat now, but I, I usually am wearing a hat, whether it's a baseball hat or a stocking cap, depending on the season. And um, I don't think that's why I'm bald. <laughs> Blame that on genetics, but yeah. Um, 
but I have so many hats. I've always had so many hats and I wore them as a kid all the time. But, you know, um, yeah, I think that's, uh, I don't know where I was going with this. I, I was, I had, I was going in some direction with it and now I can't remember. Um, oops. <laughs> well, have you had to toss, toss out hats too? <laughs> um, for those of you who have met me or know me, know that I, a lot of times wear the FM hat. Yeah. I hope, I hope you recall that. And I think I'm on like, it's so, for those of you who don't know what that means, it's just an embroidered F and an M. And that was like my baseball team sponsor in elementary school and middle school. It was this pump corporation that my friend's dad worked at called Fairbanks Morse. And my dad was the manager of the team. So I had his hat as an extra originally, and then we had an extra one too. So I just kept wearing it in high school. We named my first, one of my first like rock bands, the Flying Monkeys, because I wanted to keep wearing the hat. But then we realized there was like a connection with the Wizard of Oz in Kansas. So that was kind of cool. Um, but then like those had those adjustable plastic straps in the back. Yeah. You know, and those would like, after two years, like they would tear, tear off and they, they right. wouldn't well so i would like tape it and it just didn't it wasn't good so anyway i went to a store that made like jerseys and stuff and and now i have like custom hats of the fm that are fitted and like what so i have like seven i think (laughs) i think i have seven fm hats and i think i'm on my last one so i need to get like another one made but it's crazy like i don't travel overseas much but two of the times two of the i think i've traveled overseas maybe three or four times. Once I ran into a friend from elementary school in the Paris subway. Cause she saw my hat. Cause I wore it in high school all the time. And then I ran into a guy I went to high school with in the Tokyo, Tokyo airport. Cause he was like in aviation and was living in Hong Kong. And he recognized the hat. It's insane. <laughs> so I'm going to New York next week, New York city. And I've, um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, hopefully I'll run into someone. Oh, and I ran into a guy on the streets of Chicago who was on my baseball team. And he came up to me wondering how to get to Soldier Field. And he's like, hey, excuse me, do you know how to get to... Hewitt? Is that you? (laughs) (laughs) It was crazy. (laughs) I'm I'm hoping that in New York, maybe somebody will recognize the hat. They won't recognize me because I have a beard, maybe, if they knew me as a kid, but they'll recognize the hat. Right. So that was the opposite answer to your no, question. Those are good. No, those, those, those are good. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. All right. Have you, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Mm. Yeah. I think in recent times in the last 10 years, um, a lot of people will do an impression of me doing an impression of Michael Bolton. Sure. Right. So I guess technically that's not an impression of me, but so much of <laughs> that. Um, oh, what do we call my obsession with Michael Bolton? Like a, um, what do they call that when they ask, like, what is your not deepest secret? Oh, guilty oh, pleasure. Guilty pleasure. Guilty yeah. pleasure. So my, I would say Michael Bolton is my guilty pleasure. But and, you don't um, feel guilt about it. That's the that's it's, yeah, it's yeah, actually right. not really a guilty pleasure. It's an innocent pleasure. Yeah. 
<laughs> just and a pleasure. So, it's just a that, pleasure, Jeff. <laughs> I feel like that pleasure has become such a part of me that it is, it's in me. Yeah. And people will do that, that singing, the passionate singing, and they'll slap the bass. <laughs> people have gotten really good at doing that stupid thing that I do. Um, and now that I'm in a karaoke league, Uh-oh. Um, more and more people are being exposed to the soul and passion of Bolton through me, <laughs> which I'm, I feel very lucky that people have gravitated to it at times, you know? It's all about melody, man, and the soul and the passion. <laughs> yeah. And now he's Bolton's on this like celebrity dating show. Oh yeah. My phone has been blowing up because everyone's like, have you heard about this? I'm like, I heard about it before you did, yeah, <laughs> but I right. really appreciate you letting me know. Like it makes me feel good um, that people think of me when they see Michael Bolton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Awesome. I, I hadn't I hadn't thought of it as the um, they're doing an impression of you doing an impression, but I but it, it makes complete sense. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a good one. All right. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Okay. <laughs> I'd say. All right. A great movie for me. I mean, there's so many, there's so many great movies. And I was actually just listing like some of my favorite movies, but like, I mean, everybody loves Shawshank, right? Cause it's such a great story and mm-hmm. such great actors. And the music is incredible. I, I think Thomas Newman did that music, bringing all that together. And the, um, gosh, you know what? I can't remember who the director was. Do you oh, know the director of Shawshank? It's, um, it's uh, Demi, isn't it? No. Frank? Oh, Frank. Um, Darabont. Yeah, that's it. Frank, Frank Darabont. Yeah. Which he isn't like my favorite director, but you put all of that together and that's what makes a great movie, right? Obviously, you have to have a great story. You have to have great actors, but um, I just saw like Tenet. Uh, have you seen Tenet, the new yeah. uh, Super Nolan movie? Mm-hmm. I hadn't even heard about it, I guess, because it came out during COVID. Yeah. What a great original movie, you know? It's not one of my favorite movies, not yeah. yet at least, because I've only seen it once. But I'm going to have to watch it like five more times to figure out what's going on at times. But for a horrible movie, I mean, there are so many horrible movies. I sometimes go to the Dollar Tree and just pick up a random horrible Blu-ray or DVD because they have they do that. They sell dollar movies now at that store. And, um, but I think if I'm going to call out a horrible movie, it's got to be so horrible that I love it. And that I want to show it to other people. Okay. So for me, that horrible movie is a movie called Tusk. Have you ever heard of Tusk? I think so. Okay. So this is a Kevin Smith movie. Okay. And it started because of of um one of his episodes on his podcast called Smodcast. Mm. And it's about this guy, and I don't want to give anything away because if you're listening, you're going to want to see this. It's about a guy who gets essentially kidnapped and by this old man and gets turned into a walrus. 
And this whole storyline um, came about during his podcast. And I think Kevin Smith just wanted to see how far he could go and actually get a movie like green lit to like be made. It's ridiculous. It's actually, it's actually really well done, but Holy moly. Like, it's not like I want to watch it for my own pleasure because it's a horrible movie, but you want to see everyone else's reaction. So I've probably watched that movie more than some of my favorite movies because it's so much fun to watch the people that you're watching it with. Cause it's so horrible. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. What is a favorite book? I tend to go towards books that are, biographical i guess more than fiction um you know pete i've got a bookshelf and unfortunately a lot of those books have never been read i'm walking over to it right now and i'm not going to say michael bolton's autobiography okay that would be too easy (laughs) that's right it would be way too easy um (laughs) i guess you know, I don't want to go with a biography, though, because that's too, you know, I think maybe Shoeless Joe. That's a fictional story. That's, oh, what, yeah. the movie, that's what Field of Dreams is based on. Um, and the book is different than the movie. Um, obviously, I, I started, I got interest in the book because of the movie first, because it's one of my favorite movies. But I think because I'm... Uh, such a big baseball fan and um kinsella was the uh author's name but it's also the character's name in the movie i think that was his name in the book too i can't quite remember it's been a while but he's written a lot of baseball like or a lot of stories based around baseball and um so i think i think shoeless joe is maybe one of my you know just offhand that's probably one of my favorite books Cool. Yeah. Nice. All right. Well, we're on sports now. So uh, I'm going to ask you, since I know your your fandom anyway, I'll ask it this way. Tell me your experience of watching the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. Okay. So this was the 2019 season. Right. Um, This is 2020. This is one of probably one of the last public events you attended before pandemic. Yeah. So specifically to the Super Bowl? Yeah. Is is, yeah. Yeah. All right. So leading up to that game, obviously there was two weeks prior to their last game. So this was the first time that I had ever experienced living somewhere where you have a team in the Super Bowl. Definitely a very different vibe than like a team in the World Series, which I wasn't living in Kansas City when the Royals were in the World Series in 14 and 15. I did get experience a little bit of that, but the Super Bowl was definitely a different vibe. Um, I'll be honest. I think I would prefer my team to be in the World Series when you have games like every night, whereas the Super Bowl is just one big event, which is incredible because like the whole, well, the whole country, maybe the whole world is is watching, you know? So, um, man, just and living downtown during all that, pre-COVID, it was so exciting. Everything was red. There was, um, you know, pep rallies. We have a big thing called the Power and Light District downtown Mm -hmm. Kansas City that can fit a ton of people with pep rallies and 
Tech Nine performed because he's a local rapper. For those of you familiar with him, and um, so, but the game itself, like, it was a beautiful day here in Kansas City, and it was like what's early February. Yeah, I think it was like I wasn't even wearing. I had a t-shirt on, which is crazy in February. Um, but a bunch of my friends had rented out like this um, half of this bar kind of near downtown. And, um, cause one, a, a good friend of mine or a, a college friend of mine, he had, um, just painted like a mural of Kansas city in this bar. So we had access to, um, to like renting it out for like 50 people. So like 50 people that you're friends with. I mean, it was like all the spread of wings and pizza. And, and it was just a great way to start off the day before the game started. And, for those of you that remember this game, um, I think it was one of the, um, I mean, obviously the Chiefs ran it, so I'm going to think it's like one of the better Super Bowls. But, I mean, we were down by, what, three scores? No, you were down, you were down 10, but like, it was like eight, nine, eight, eight, nine minutes left in the game, and Mahomes had just thrown an interception. Like, it looked like it was over. Like, you, you were, you were was, worried it was done. The most up and down, like, emotions for those, I mean – being a Chiefs fan my whole life, like, but yet I don't think any of us ever felt like it was out of our hands. Mahomes had done so much that year, especially in the postseason, to show that we could always come from behind. That I don't think we ever really got super scared. It was like as long as the ball's in his hands and we're like driving down, we're gonna score. And that was obviously in that that game last year. Let's not talk about or this this past Super Bowl. Let's not talk about. But man, just the the joy of of coming back and 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 winning that game was amazing. And <laughs> um, I remember like trying to get home that night because everybody was out, you know. And I think the game probably ended around. I don't know, 10 or 11. I don't That doesn't matter. But the, like the Uber drivers were nowhere to be found. So I just started walking and, and I live probably like, I don't know, a few miles from where, from where we were watching the game and people are just all over the streets, just high-fiving each other. Um, if anybody's been to Kansas City, they might know the Liberty Memorial, the big World War One monument, and Union Station is just past that, and then and then just north of Union Station is downtown. And just to see like everyone just so happy and and everything was red, and I actually like got some amazing photos of the city, like and just to experience that was so cool. They had already changed the banner at Union Station to World Champions in those like two hours since the game it was it was amazing. And then like walking downtown, there's a big entertainment district there. And like, it was, it was wild. It was so cool to be a part of that. And then the, the parade was a few days later and we, we got to use a snow day, I guess, technically so that we could do that. And it started like just down from where I live. So it was really cool just to be able to walk to it. And I just, I just walked the entire parade route. Um, it was so cold that day, but it didn't matter. Ultimately ending it at the union station where I'd been a few nights before. And um, 
yeah, we all hope that that would have repeated this year. Um, it was weird though, because with COVID for this 2021 Super Bowl, there wasn't a whole lot going on. They couldn't do a whole lot around the city like we had the previous year. So it just it just didn't quite feel the same. We had just been there. So we kind of starting to I don't want to say we we know what it feels like to be a Patriots fan, but it was like I don't know. I don't know if that had anything to do with the way the Chiefs played. I don't think so. <laughs> but who knows? Like, I, think, course, I think the problem was that you you uh, had no offensive linemen. And yeah. uh, and it turns out that they are very, very important to a functioning offense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They picked up a lot of guys that are, I mean, it's a pretty much a new line, I think, for this next year. But they're like a lot of veterans, so we we do have to get young again soon. But yeah. a lot of big hopes for this upcoming season again. I mean, as long as you got number fifteen back there, yeah. God, there's so much magic. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. This is going to only be his what? Four fifths? Is this? Hold on, I'm trying to think how his It'll fourth be season his... as a starter. Right. That's it. Because in two thousand, this two thousand eighteen season. I mean, we were that close to getting into the Super Bowl that year. Yeah. Against the when we had the Patriots here in the AFC Championship. Yeah. And um, what was that guy's name who jumped off sides at the end? D something. D Ford. D Ford. Yeah. Oh, man, the things I could say about him. <laughs> at least I think he was on the 49ers the following year. So at least I think we beat him in the Super Bowl. Yeah. But man, that could have been three Super Bowls in a row. I know. Yeah. Kansas City has been very lucky with sports. Royals in the Super or in the World Series twice. Chiefs in the Super Bowl twice. Sporting KC, the soccer team, has won a lot in the last decade. Like, and now we have a women's soccer team that I hear could be good. So, yeah, it's awesome. Very lucky for this little people think of a, a little flyover, right? Midwestern town. Yeah. What's something pop culturey, uh, and the more obscure the better. That uh, if you meet someone and they say, "I like this," whatever this is, and you're like, "We're we're good." I already know we're good. What's that for you? Oh, there's so many things. I'm like a pop culture junkie. Whether it's movies or music or, um, I mean, obviously so much is, is music, but I think, gosh, I'm trying to put it like to come up with a story. Like if I'm running into somebody in a city I've never been into, it's a good question, Pete. Kind of stumped me again and I shouldn't be stumped. I'm looking around my apartment to see like what's on my walls that would like really get me going. I mean, I think I'm so into like '90s alternative music. You just start like rattling off song titles of like really obscure bands. Like I just like if you know who Jellyfish is, <laughs> then we're gonna hit it off immediately. <laughs> They're like one of the greatest bands of the early '90s. That obviously at this point a lot of people know who they are, but they're still not like played that much. Have I played you Jellyfish? Do you know Jellyfish? I, I just the name. I don't know. I can't know. I don't know a song. Okay. Well, if you like Jellyfish, you're going to like all the music I like. Okay. 
it's like a power pop thing, mm-hmm. but it's it's so well crafted. It's like a mixture of like the Beach Boys and the Beatles and Queen. It's perfect. They only put out two albums, so I will freak out if you're a Jellyfish fan. We're gonna get along. But if like if I'm in another city and they know of like a, a local band from who I used to go see here in Kansas City, because I'm I'm oddly like become like a Kansas City music historian. I don't know. I don't know how to say that, but I uh I could talk about that for days too. And I don't know why that's just because I got to experience a lot of that grungy 90s music of, of bands in Kansas City that like didn't ever really go mainstream. But if anybody knows like any of those groups, we'll have a lot to talk about. Like name one of them. Is that Jellyfish or is that, or are you talking about? No, Jellyfish was from San Francisco. I think the biggest bands that came out of Kansas City, like in the 90s and early 2000s, would have been like the Get Up Kids, which is like a emo alternative. Um, Paw, P-A-W, was one. They were going to be, they were considered like the next Nirvana. Mm. Um, Because Lawrence was starting to get, Lawrence, Kansas, which is only like, 45 minutes from Kansas city or so that's where KU's at. And they had a, an amazing music scene where a lot of bands were getting signed. I mean, everyone was getting signed in the nineties. Right. But a lot of these bands got more exposure because of that. And Paul was one of the first big ones out of the grunge scene that had videos on MTV. They had a song on some game back in the day called like road road rash or something i forget anyway um and then they were like huge in europe check it out dragline and death to traitors they're two big 90s rockers (laughs) (laughs) awesome yeah all right uh what is a non-music related goal that you still have for your life Hmm. i guess i still want to like explore new places which would be like what well for example like i've never been to new york city and i'm going there um next week for two weeks awesome finding ways to to travel sometimes hard as a teacher yeah and some people are like well but you have your summers off but do we (laughs) right so Cause we have those few, those couple months where we can find time to travel, which we are lucky, but I want to, I think I want to explore more. I mean, I, I visited China and Germany, parts of Italy, France, but a goal of mine is to go to more places that I haven't been. I speaking like domestically, I haven't explored hardly any of the Northeast. Mm. The more places you visit, like the more that like in a way sometimes changes, you know, in a good way, most, yeah. in most cases. So I, even though I'm staying like, for example, in New York city, I, I do want to like go to Boston and Philly and, and I, <laughs> you may know, like my dad and I, um, I may have told you how we do these baseball trips and go to different yep. stadiums. But so that that's helped like seeing some new cities too. Um, but I know, I know I want to go to, uh, Japan, you know, I would love to visit like Spain and um, Portugal and 
And I have a lot of friends over there, especially after the World Percussion Group, that I can go visit um, and see their culture. So I think, you know, that's a that's a big goal is just to continue to explore and go on adventures. And, and luckily, music has allowed for a lot of those adventures already. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a goal for sure. That's not specific to music or my career. No, that's no, that's great. Your biggest kitchen mess up. <laughs> All right, I got one. Yeah. I was a uh, I was pretty young when this happened, and this isn't a very long story, but I think it's hilarious because I when I was probably in elementary school, and I don't know what my parents were making. Maybe it was like. Craft macaroni and cheese in this situation, but they were they they told me to get out a um well they got a pot out you know that you would put your macaroni in, and they're like, "Go ahead and put the water on the stove." So I filled up the pot with water, and I literally poured the water on the hot stove. <laughs> now that didn't create a huge mess, but it's definitely my most memorable like kitchen mess up at a young age because i i actually did what they told me to do <laughs> you weren't wrong of, yeah no like I, <laughs> oh man that's good <laughs> i think like well, I mean, what was their reaction we're like what what are you doing <laughs> yeah and then they just started laughing because <laughs> luckily there was no there was nothing in the pot with the water yeah Right. Just, you know, just cooled off the stove, I guess. I don't know. I didn't know. Really young. You were at least, what, 28, 29, something like that? <laughs> yeah. And moved back in after college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Here we go. Uh, most bizarre, strangest, or funniest concert performance experience that involves you? There was one time I. I got like flu symptoms in the middle of a gig. It was like a community orchestra. I was playing timpani. Um, this was in McPherson, Kansas. And um, <laughs> I remember having a, I was at the K-State Texas game the day before, I think, or maybe two days before. And we had just beat Texas. So the entire like, student body crammed together on the field in like late November. Okay. So I blame getting the flu on that event because we're so, you know, thousands of people and mid concert, I think we were doing like the pink Panther theme or something. (laughs) Yeah. Like we're playing in a church and I'm like up in the back, but I'm like raised kind of above the rest of the orchestra. I think I couldn't hold it any longer. I had to, I had to throw up which is, it was disgusting. Oh my God. And I, so I had to like leave in the middle of the piece and, and luckily it was like near the end. And I, I was like, there better be a bathroom back behind this um, sanctuary. (laughs) Thankfully there was, and I made it in time, but I definitely didn't finish the concert. (laughs) Um, And I remember, luckily it was at the end and then definitely had like, had to take a few days off from that. <laughs> but another one that I really remember that wasn't like funny, I guess, was the NCPP. Was, this is going to always be a memorable event. 
And this, and you, I'm sure you were there. This was when it was at OU. I'm thinking maybe 2013 or 14. The tornado. Yeah. The tornado year. So I think it's 2013. Yeah. So people probably always remember the recent big tornado in Oklahoma was in Moore, Oklahoma, which is just North of Norman where the university of Oklahoma is at. And I remember the day we got there, there was a tornado warning and we had to go like into like a a lower level of of their music building and wait it out, but nothing big happened. But then the next day there was like a, a recital for people who were attending the conference could have like essentially volunteered to perform a piece on the recital. And, And we were all in the recital hall that afternoon and I was playing a multi-solo that day. And there was probably, the program was probably an hour. And all of us were hanging backstage. But following this storm that was coming through, and I remember like going in and out of like, there were some like outside doors that we could like stick our head out during the concert (laughs) to see like what was happening outside. And And I will never forget like listening to the news guy on our phone and one of the o- OU like performers was like, that tornado is like, it, the path is going to hit my house. And yet right after that, he had to go out and perform. And I'm thinking, God, what is going through this guy's mind while he's performing this piece, knowing that this huge tornado is bearing down on his house. And then I think I performed right after him. And I remember like lights flickering in the hall while I was performing. It wasn't extremely noticeable. Like it never went black, but there was flickering, which had to have been like the tornado, like busting through like power grids or whatever, whatever it was. Um, Cause we were so close. And yet in that hall, we didn't hear any sirens. I know. Which is really scary yeah. looking back on it because that tornado was massive. I don't remember what, I mean, I think it was like the biggest EF you could have. Like a five or something like that. Yeah, five or six. I forget which is the the highest. But yeah, that was that was crazy. And then I think by the time we the the recital was over, the storm had passed. Yeah. But I I do remember driving up to Moore that night. Yeah. I think I was in the car with you because there were like four of us just like, we just want to know what happened. Yeah. Josh Armstrong was with us. Yeah. And and Victoria. Yeah. Yeah. And we were, I remember seeing like the helicopters, like shining lights down on the hospital that got hit. I mean, that whole space around along, well, I think we were on I-35, like looking at it that night. And there was like in our hotel parking lot, there was this, I remember I have a picture of this truck that was you couldn't tell what color the truck was because it was just covered in mud. Um, so anyway, I think that that performance will always be with me because it was such a big um, natural disaster, you know, that we were so close to and so lucky that we just missed it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Crazy. it was really weird because in the auditorium, there were windows made not big ones, but there were windows and you could tell it was bad out, but you Uh could, but like you're saying, you couldn't hear sirens and you couldn't, you couldn't hear how bad it was. Uh And then I remember court after, or like dirt or something like 
at some point he's just like, I just want to let everyone know that a massive tornado hit the city of Moore 10 miles north of us during the concert. Um, and it's bad. Like it, it was like it just something like that. So it was, yeah. Yeah. And it was bad. It was real bad. <laughs> really bad. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that was one of the it first. Wasn't. That was a that was one of the first times that I remember having to do the mark like on Facebook marked safe. Yes, <laughs> that was I think the first time I ever. Or I think I just texted my family and was just like, "I'm in I'm in Oklahoma City. I'm I'm in Norman. I'm okay. I just want you to know that this happened really close. <laughs> yeah. Like one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, Pete. We've. I feel like you and I have been associated with more than one tornado, though. What's the other do, one? Do you remember? So, in 2017, you were going to visit my family's lake house, <gasps> right? And yes. and it was Memorial Weekend of 2017, and a storm picked up, and and our friend Brad Regeer, yeah, was down there with his pregnant wife who we didn't even know was pregnant she knew but we didn't know yeah and the storm is like like ripping limbs off trees and throwing them through the yard and we're just standing there watching the storm go by on our sliding glass door and then like all this rain starts coming into the house so we're like dealing with that and we didn't even realize a tornado was coming down our cove and you were supposed to come i think either later that day i think and all the power was knocked out and we're like we we found out later that it was actually a tornado. We didn't know because there was like water everywhere from the lake. And, um, but we had to leave because we didn't think that like we'd be able to have everything refrigerated for the rest of the holiday weekend. So I like, yeah. you gotta go home. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. was nuts. We got a new roof out of it. <laughs> Luckily no one got hurt. No, <laughs> and, it's, uh, but yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Oh. Midwest living. Yeah. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. All right. And Jeff, last question. What one piece of art could be anything, music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, whatever, has impacted you the most recently? I am always listening to new music. I still buy CDs. <laughs> They're really cheap now. Yeah, a lot of times used. So I'm constantly being um, uh, exposed to like new music of all genres. So, and that's nothing. I mean, that's been going on my entire life, but it never gets old because it's always new, you know. And I'm always buying like vinyl and and all that. So I'm I'm constantly being exposed to, and it might not always be new music. A lot of times it's old music that I've never heard. New to but you music. <laughs> to me. Yeah. To yeah. me. Um, I did recently start using Spotify, which I used to always be like, why would I want to do that? Because I want to own my music, which I still own my music, but I've, I've realized that Spotify is such an amazing tool to find new music. Yeah. So I will always go out if there's like a new artist that i'm like love because i've been listening to them on spotify i will go out and buy their cd i won't i still don't want to go on i I always want to own it so i i still (laughs) i still put my music into my itunes Mm -hmm. i rip it so that i can also have it like a real copy on my phone 
and it's actually the file, you know, not a streaming thing. But it's still important for me to like support the uh, the artist. I mean, of course, that's what we that's we we all as musicians have to keep doing that to help our other fellow musicians. So, yeah, I think for me, it's it's always going to be music. I mean, there there definitely has been like visual art that has affected me recently. Um, I recently found out about um, Thomas Hart Benton. Oh yeah. But he's a, he's from here and I visited his house and his studio, which if anyone's ever in Kansas city, it's a great little tour and it's free. It's on like the state um, national parks or something. And I've really liked his artwork. It's just so American. Ken Burns actually did a documentary on him, which is kind of cool. Really, really cool because when Ken Burns does a documentary, it's always really good. And all of his documents, so many of his documentaries are so centered around like what looks or what is, what encapsulates um, America. And I think Thomas Hart Benton's work really did that. And, And then just the fact that he's a Midwesterner, lived in Kansas City, just has made a, a deeper connection for me and the, the art museum here at the, the Nelson Atkins has a big section for his art. So you can see the real thing there too. So that that's been cool. Uh, he's, I mean, he's got huge things in the Capitol too. Like that's part of the tour right? It's to go to see some of the stuff. And it, yeah, it's, it's in Jeff city. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I've actually never been in there. And that's it's, a huge, that's like one of his biggest things. It's, it's worth it to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. His, one of his most famous ones is um, in New York. I'm, I should go, I need to add that to my list of things I want to do. I need to, I forget what the name of the painting is, but it's got like a train and it's just, I think most people would recognize it as being of that modern style. Um, yeah. Do you know where it's, it's the housed? Um, what are some of the names of the big ones in New York? I mean, the, there's the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Museum of Modern Art, Frick Collection, um, the Whitney. I I think it's at the Met. Do we call it the Met? That's the, that's the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that's where it's at. Okay. I'm I'm looking it up. I don't know how to see what the the name of it was, but it's called America Today at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Cool. Just a complete pleasure chatting with Jeff Hewitt again. I hope things continue to look up for him, as I hope he enjoys his time traveling all over New York City. And we'll catch up in person very soon. This week's rave is sports. Okay, that's somewhat vague, but hear me out. There are so many major sporting events going on right now and throughout the summer that it felt like it was time to tell you about them. So because of the pandemic, two major sports that are typically completely done at this point are still going on. The NBA and NHL playoffs, both of which started their shortened seasons late, had their playoffs start about a month later than usual. Last week and going into this week, The NBA conference semifinals concluded with a bunch of wild games capped off with two outstanding game sevens in which the road team of the Milwaukee Bucks beat the Brooklyn Nets in overtime 
and the road team Atlanta Hawks surprised number one seed Philadelphia 76ers. In the West, the Los Angeles Clippers made their first ever conference finals in franchise history by beating the number one seed Utah Jazz in game six and coming back from 25 points down in the third quarter to do so. They're currently playing the Phoenix Suns, a team that had been the worst in the NBA for about 10 seasons. And of those final four teams, the most recent winner of the NBA title were the Milwaukee Bucks, who did so in the early 1970s. It's crazy. As of this past Wednesday night, my New York Islanders in the National Hockey League forced a Game 7 of their conference finals against the Tampa Bay Lightning in overtime. I was too young to really remember and enjoy the Islanders' run of four straight Stanley Cup titles in the early 1980s, so this feels like a glory time for them as well. If you're a fan of baseball and softball, both the NCAA tournaments for those sports have been winding down over the past month. If you're a fan of golf, we're in a stretch of majors going on about once a month. And if you're looking forward to the Olympics that will be starting in late July, we're in the stretch of Olympic trials for most of the major sports there, including gymnastics, track and field, and swimming. If you're a tennis fan, we're in that French Open Wimbledon stretch with Wimbledon in the UK about to begin next week. It's hopeful that Serena Williams will finally, soon, get to that elusive 24th major and tie the women's record there. And it seems more likely than never that Novak Djokovic, having just won the French Open for the second time in his career and getting to career major 19, will have the best chance of sweeping all of the majors in one calendar year and doing so in his mid-30s. As a massive Roger Federer fan, it hurts to say this, but it really feels like Novak, unless he gets severely injured, will go down as the greatest to ever play the men's game. Ugh, feels gross saying that. And lastly, if you're a soccer fan, you have to be hopefully feeling good about the very young United States men's national team after they won a title over Mexico earlier this month and seeing their growth while you're also watching the 2020 Euros go on, which are happening in mornings and afternoons and taking up your time there, as well as the Copa America tournament going on all over South America. So, wow, it's a pretty exciting sports times to watch, and I hope you're enjoying all of it. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.